We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show. I'm Neil McCready, joined as usual by the chair of the uh, Department of Economics at Ole Miss, Josh Hendrickson. Josh, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, got a lot to get to today. A lot of different things that I've noticed over the past couple of weeks that uh, I see these things. And sometimes I text you and sometimes you text me and sometimes I just make a mental note to, hey, I want to ask him about this. And one of those things happened on uh, Saturday night. Uh, as you know, I cover Ole Miss. Ole Miss played on Thursday night, which on Thursday night sort of sucked. But on Saturday, it was kind of nice that I had Saturday off. And so I had watched some sports and the family was home and then we'd done different things. And that evening, I turned on a couple of games. And uh, I meant to watch Florida, Florida State, but I ended up starting off with Clemson, South Carolina. And the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, was there at that game. I've been to that stadium, covered, I don't know, five games there probably in my life. And it's a big stadium. Um, I've never been to that game, but it's a big rivalry, Clemson versus South Carolina, the battle for the state of South Carolina. And um, the game was in Columbia, like I said. It's 90,000 people, roughly, give or take a few thousand one way or the other. It's a big stadium. And Trump was out on the field, kind of near the end zone, and he was met with this thunderous applause. And I'm sure there were some boos scattered in there somewhere, but the overwhelming sentiment was applause. And I kind of wondered to myself, hey, what does that mean? I mean, I know it's South Carolina. It's a state that's going to vote Republican. It's not a swing state. In and of itself, it doesn't say a lot about the election. But then the next question that crossed my mind, and I'm not the only person to have this. I've heard other people say this, so I'm not stealing someone's bit, but you and I tape every other Wednesday, was, is there a stadium in America? And I mean this sincerely. I don't mean this in a, in a critical, biting way. But is there a stadium in America that last weekend, on rivalry weekend all over the country, we had Washington, Washington State, Oregon, Oregon State, Arizona, Arizona State. Um, you know, you had... Uh, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Florida State. Um, I mean, the list goes on. These teams that played each other, these big Ohio State, Michigan, God, the game, big game. Um, the, the game in Minnesota, the, the battle for Paul Bunyan's axe. I can't remember who Minnesota played, but it's a big game. Iowa plays Nebraska in a big rivalry game. You know what I'm saying? Pick a stadium. 
Is there a stadium in the country where Joe Biden could have walked out into the end zone and received that thunderous applause? No. I think that what this illustrates is that Donald Trump is actually incredibly popular. I think people forget this. If you have a narrow election, people tend to like interpret, you know, some narrow margin in the election as you not being popular or something like that. But these people, these two candidates got an incredible number of votes. So there is a huge constituency out there. The fundamental difference is, is that Joe Biden's success, Joe Biden's popularity was not anything related to Joe Biden. His success was entirely related to the fact that he was a Democrat and that he wasn't Donald Trump. And the thing with Donald Trump is, is that there's actually a, a significant segment of the population that likes this guy. And either they like him because they want him to be president or they like the fact that he says what he wants to say or, or whatever it is. But there's clearly a very, very loyal following. There's clearly a lot of people um, who uh, who really like this guy. I mean, look at the polls. Like, I mean, against all odds, he's still the overwhelming favorite to win the Republican nomination. His numbers keep going up. The more that he's attacked... The more his, I don't know, his favorabilities go up a little bit. His unfavorables sort of go down. He's running away with the Republican, appears to be the Republican nomination. We haven't gotten to that. We're getting close. I mean, it's December. By the time you and I get together again, it'll be December. We're, we're getting closer to uh, Iowa and all of those things, but all of the polling makes it certainly look like it will be very, very, very difficult for whether it's Ron DeSantis or Vicki Haley or or Nikki Haley, I was combining names, uh, Vivak Ramaswamy, whoever the case may be, it would be difficult for any of them truly to gather enough momentum to truly challenge for the Republican nomination. That's the way it looks right now. I was listening to one of the legal scholars. Um, it was uh, in Ca- California. He does the show, with, used to do the show with Corolla. Um, his name's escaping me right now. He's He's a Democrat, actually. He's very good, very funny, based out in California. Uh, he represented Scott Peterson in the legal thing. I don't know why his name is escaping my mind at this moment. But he was saying that really only one of these legal cases against Trump truly has a chance to get to the finish line between now and November of, of 2024. And so I think this hope among Democrats or the the prosecution people that, that they would be able to lock him up, if you will, put him behind bars between now and, and then. That that appears to be unrealistic, just the way that the legal machine in our country works. And so it's almost like every time they throw a, another dagger at him, he just kind of gains some strength from it. And as we're about a month away from 2024, I just keep coming back to the same conclusion that we are in for a wild ride. And um, this same attorney said, you know, if you made me predict today, I don't think Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump. And if I think that, a lot of other Democrats probably think that, and there's a decision to be made, and they're running out of time to make it. We keep coming back to that storyline. And all of those things went through my mind as I watched Donald Trump on the field in Columbia, South Carolina, getting this just 
thunderous applause that lasted several minutes. There's, I don't know that there's another person that could have walked on the field at that moment and received that sort of a reception. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. Or It just struck me. I'm, I, I wondered in my own mind, who else could walk on that field at that moment and get that reception? I mean, Taylor Swift, maybe? I mean, who, who, who would it be? Well, and I think what's going on here, too, is that, and we've talked about this before, the prosecution, unless you have some really significant charge and you have a slam dunk case, the prosecution is a really, of Donald Trump is a really risky strategy because if you can't convince people that this isn't just like a witch, a witch hunt, or if you can't convince people that this isn't politically motivated, then you have a real problem here because the, by prosecuting him, you are, um, you know, you're creating a sympathetic figure and you're sort of galvanizing the support for him. And I've often wondered if this is a miscalculation where they kind of feel like, oh, this is a win-win situation because either they'll get rid of him or, um, you know, uh, this will galvanize him. But in the end, he's really unpopular and so he won't win anyway. Mark Garagos was the name I was trying to think of, by the way. Yeah, And I think that um, that's a very risky strategy. And I just think that like what they've actually done is they've just galvanized the support. Like there are people who might have, you know, supported him or liked him, but kind of like, you know, were uncomfortable with the way he acts or like the things that he says or, or, or whatever. Those people who already have some degree of, you know, uh, common interest or, or sympathy for him, like they're just going to be galvanized by going after him. And you see this, I mean, he, he's been showing up at events all the time. And he and and he's greeted with the same reception. Like I mean, he was at like a UFC event in like New York City, Madison Square Garden. Yeah, and uh, and and you know he got huge cheers. And I get that that's not a represent <laughs> the UFC. Uh, yeah, it has a certain audience, is, it, right? It's, it's not representative of uh, New York City, but still, you know, um, you would expect there to at least be more balance or something in the crowd. And he, he you know, and he got huge cheers. And like, yeah, it's you know. Um, you know, it's it's not a representative sample, but you know, it seems like everywhere he goes, he he's getting this sort of thing, and I and I think that, you know, that that's also something that I think that people didn't take seriously enough during the last campaign because yeah, we had this really close election, but if you looked at uh, the, the campaign in 2020 and he's going around the country, he had enor- he had enormous crowds of people at all of these events. Um, you know, so, so many people that they were complaining, right? Like, oh, they're all gonna, you know, they're all gonna die. They're all gonna get sick, right? There's a pandemic going on, but he had these huge crowds and you don't get those huge crowds unless you, you, you have a great deal of support. And now maybe there's an upper bound on that support that, that hurts him to where like he can't get above a certain level, but, but I mean, if you believe the numbers, right? I mean, this is the, this is the argument that, that sometimes you, you have with people when, when someone will say to me, do you think the election was rigged? My response is always two things. One, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't prove that it was. Uh, a lot of things happened that are, you know, kind of kind of odd. But but if we are to assume that the election was completely on the up and up, that it was the the, the cleanest election in American history, okay, then take the numbers for their face value. Eighty-one million people voted for Joe Biden. It's a record. 
75-plus million voted for Donald Trump, which makes him the second most received, the second most votes received in American electoral history. That's incredibly popular. That's 7 million more than Barack Obama received when he ran for the first time in 2008 as in a, in a campaign where he did get those crowds, right? I mean, I remember him going to, to Denver to what is now Invesco or whatever. It used to be called Mile High Stadium. and It's a huge NFL stadium, and it was just, just packed for a po- politician. I mean, you know, you, who, who gets – who rece- I mean, it was – you could feel this wave around Obama. I mean, there was no question he was going to win. And – Trump had that feel. He had it in 2016, if you paid attention. And then in 2020, I remember the final days of that election, like watching him go to your old neck of the woods, Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota and Ohio, and just these people waiting out in the cold all day long to hear the same speech all day long. And this guy just just all over the place. And you're like, well, this is fascinating, right? Because all the polls had him losing fairly easily. But if you take the numbers at face value, 75 million people. And Biden ran as, hey, I'm not him. I'm going to be the uniter in chief. I'm going to calm this thing down. I'm going to get the grown-ups back into the room. Not Again, I'm not being critical. Those are the things he said. I'm going to do those things. We're going to calm this thing down. And a lot of people are like, yeah, I like that. Ooh, that sounds good. Let's calm it down. Let's get... Let's just get back to where we're not talking about politics left and right. And well, Biden hasn't done that. That's not what he's done in now going on three years. And so it's an interesting dynamic to watch. I think going into this final year of this, what's going to be a very heated, contentious campaign, I believe, where these two sides hate one another. And I don't know what Biden can run on this time. Because he can't run on, I'm going to unite. He can't run on, I'm going to uh, calm the rhetoric. Now he's got a record that is not all positive. Um, can't really run on COVID. Because people have made up their minds about what happened with COVID. And there's no there's no changing anyone's mind on that. So he's got to do something different. And just, I'm not him. For a while, I thought that was going to be enough. And now I look at the poll numbers and I'm like, I don't think that's enough. Well, I wonder, too, if what's happening is that so much of the discussion is sort of filtered through the media and the media is in, you know, their typical media bubble. And so, like, the narrative is always kind of like, you know, Donald Trump isn't popular. Uh, Donald Trump is facing all of these investigations, all of these uh, charges. Um, You know, Donald Trump, um, you know, has a ceiling on his popularity and, you know, how in the world, you know, could Republicans think that he could win an election? And um, and I kind of wonder when you see events like this uh, and you see like the crowds that he draws that maybe they're just completely out of touch and maybe we're all just buying into like their their narrative uh, about this. Because when you see these crowds and when you hear people um, talk about this, when you look at the polls, none of the things that the media says are killing him are actually killing him in any in any measurable way. Because people don't, people don't care about that stuff, and we never have. I mean, if you go back and you think about Bill Clinton when he ran for re-election, there was this 
assumption on some people's parts that, oh, this Monica Lewinsky thing is going to take him down. No, it didn't. The economy was great. Everybody was making money. People were like, hey, if it ain't broken, he, what, what he does in, in, in his private life, that's between he and his wife and her and whoever, and I, I really just don't care. That was the general consensus. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I didn't, I didn't care. It just didn't matter to me. I mean, I was too young to, I was in my twenties. It just didn't, whatever. But I don't, I don't think people really think about all that stuff. They don't really understand it. People are consumed with the price of things, their pocketbook. I'm looking at the wall street journal here, the headline home prices hit fresh record in September. Uh, an editorial, the price is wrong for housing. Even if mortgage rates come down today, come down, today's high home prices don't seem sustainable. That's what people are thinking about. People are thinking about, hey, I had a friend on Twitter say today, this is a successful business owner, say, hey, the holidays are, Christmas is coming up, it's shopping time, and I we're not going to be able to do as much as we typically do. Is anybody else experiencing that? And the answer to him was like 90-something percent, yeah, can't do as much. I went to the, I did the big grocery store for Thanksgiving. Laura sent me with a list. And there was some big ticket items on the list. But I walked out of there, it was $400. And I, I, I wondered, as I'm doing that, I, the things I think about to ask you, that's what people are wondering, right? They're, they're going out of their local grocery store. They're checking out. They're putting it on their credit card. Their credit card's mounting. They, the dream of, hey, we're going we're gonna to move out of this home and into a bigger home is not realistic at this point because mortgage rates are what they are and housing is so expensive. People are having to put their dreams aside. That's what people think about, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. I think that's what they think about when they go to the ballot box, not some ideology that is sort of, as you say, and I think you're right, that is shaped by, on both sides, a... Um, media elites, both on the the left and the right. Yeah. And I think if you look at what's going on in the economy, I mean, I I keep seeing these articles that are like, oh, things are so great. Like, why are people so upset? And like, um, look at how inflation is coming down and and, and all this sort of stuff. And and it's kind of amazing to me to, to see these articles because it's like, I mean, I've, I've said this before, when things are going great, you don't have to tell people that things are going great. Like people are aware of that. But also like the emphasis on this, I mean, I've said this to people in my own profession because economists will say to me like, well, you know, the one thing that really doesn't make sense is that inflation is starting to come down. And my, my and, and the point that I continue to make is like, yes, inflation is coming down, but prices aren't coming down. So yeah, like maybe prices were going up by 9% last year, but now they're going uh, up by 3% this year. And yeah, 3% is better than 9%, but the total increase is a little over 12%, right? Because you got that 9%, then you got the 3% on top of the uh, the 9%. And so people are seeing these prices go up. And what I keep saying to people is like, oh, okay, like you think inflation is not a problem. Okay, let's go have, uh, let's debate it. But when we debate it, let's go to the grocery store and we'll stand in the middle of the grocery store and we'll debate it and we'll see who wins because people know what they pay for stuff. And if you look at the data, real wages are falling. So wages adjusted for inflation are falling. That means that people's wages are not keeping up with inflation. And if they're not keeping up with inflation, that means that people are going to have to cut back on spending. You know, Either that or they're going to have to rack up debt. 
And um, and it's not a good time to rack up debt because interest rates have, have risen dramatically. And so, you know, people are facing very difficult decisions because, you know, when interest rates are low, you might say, hey, you know, we're struggling a little bit, but maybe we'll put the Christmas gifts on the credit card this year and we'll just pay it off over time and it'll yeah, be fine. We'll pay it off by June. It's yeah. good. And, uh, and but now you, you've got oh, everything's more expensive. And um, if you put it on the credit card, you're not going to pay it off by June. You know, maybe you're not going to pay it off until, you know, um, August or September or next Christmas. And, or you still owe next Christmas and then you do it again. Yeah. And then you, before you know it, you're in over your head. You're drowning. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, you look around and everything, everything is getting more expensive. Wages are not keeping up. And so it's no surprise that people are upset. And I think that this ties into the, you know, the popularity of Donald Trump is I think that part of the popularity, too, is nostalgia. Right. Like part of it is kind of like people are starting to think like, hey, you know what? Like that guy said some crazy stuff and, um, you know, and he was obno- and, and, you know, he could be obnoxious and everything was like a five alarm fire every morning. But, you know. Things were going good, right? Like we were, you know, uh, our wages were rising in real terms, you know, uh, stock prices were going up. And so people have a tendency to think back on that and go, well, you know, was it really that bad? Like, you know, w- was it really that bad? Uh, like were the, were the tweets so bad that, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, that we, that we had to get rid of this guy because the, the guy that we got right now, like, doesn't seem to have any idea what to do and just keeps telling us how great things are. I mean, again, I'm just reading headlines. Okay. I mean, home sales fell to a new 13 year low in October. Houses too expensive to buy underpin lofty rents. Congrats. Your house made you rich. Now sell it. Uh, while all inflation feels bad, housing inflation is the worst. That's written by your friend Greg Ip. Um, it, it there's there, there's just even worldwide, China's exports tumble again in fresh sign of economic trouble. It's U.S. versus China in an increasingly divided world economy. Um, Orrin Cass writes essay: Why Trump is right about tariffs. Eurozone inflation slows more than expected. Uh, The low-wage pay surge is over, threatening the consumer boom. Labor shortages, remote work, fueled job gains for workers with disabilities. I guess that's a good one. U.S. hiring slowed to 150,000 in October. These are are headlines. And so if these are the headlines of the Wall Street Journal, it tells me that the, 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 the guy in Topeka, Kansas, or in Grenada, Mississippi, or in Trustful, Alabama, who's probably not reading the Wall Street Journal every day, he's feeling this stuff in his life. Yeah, and I think... Or in Columbia, South Carolina, and that leads them to applaud the guy when he walks back out when they go, we kind of missed that. Because that's how I interpret that. It's not... I don't, I don't know what it is. I think it's... Yeah, is there? Does he have this populist support among people? Sure, but those cats are not typically at the at the South Carolina Clemson football game. Being honest, that's not where they go. They're more likely to be at the MMA match. The people at like the Ole Miss Mississippi State game are kind of normal people, and if they're giving roaring applause to Trump. Do you think the Democrats pay attention to this? Do you think they tell themselves, hey, that's the deep south. That's just the way it is. Or do you think that when someone goes, that eh, happened in New York City too. What are, what are we doing? 
I think the smart ones pay attention. I mean, you've already seen a lot of people come out and say like, hey, Biden needs to really think hard about whether he wants to run. Um, you don't get big name people coming out and saying things like that. I mean, even like uh, Obama's um, advisor, uh, David Axelrod, came out and said, hey, you know, Biden really needs to think carefully about whether he wants to run again. Somebody that prominent within the party for them to come out and say that publicly, that means there are a lot of people who are saying it privately. Like he's not freelancing. He's not just doing this, you know, to get attention. He doesn't he doesn't need the attention. He already gets to go on the television all the time. And I think, well, and, and another thing too, though, is that people notice problems um, in the economy before it shows up in the data, right? Like by the time it shows up in the data, like the, the stuff has already happened. And so if, if the stuff has already happened, then it's like, well, you know, um, there's a lag between when the things happen and then when it shows up in the data. And so unemployment is a classic result, right? Like people experience unemployment before you see it in the data. In fact, like if you, if, if you look at actual measures of, of inflate or, or, or of unemployment, what you see is that, um, if you like normalize it, you know, to, to make it so that it's, you know, um, so that you're just looking at like certain size movements or something in, in, uh, unemployment, what, what you notice is like the big movement in the unemployment data happens like in the middle towards the end of the recession, right? So in other words, like this is a very lagging indicator that like what actually matters, um, you know, is, has already happened by the time that it shows up in the data. And so if what, and so this is an important point because I was in DC, uh, a month ago and, uh, Thomas Honig was there. He used to be the president of the Kansas city fed. And one of the things that he was talking about was he said, you know, look, um, the first signs of trouble, um, in like the housing market and in, um, financial markets, uh, prior to the financial crisis was in 2006. And that, you know, they start that we started noticing things in 2006, but it took another two years for any of that stuff to actually show up in a tangible way in terms of economic activity, in terms of, uh, in, in terms of banking. And then it took another year for us to really hit the bottom. And so, you know, the idea that, I mean, so one of the things that you see is you see all these negative headlines, but then you see all of these other people saying, actually, things are great. Like, look at this data or look at, or look at that. And I think that the problem is, is that they're looking at, they're looking at lagging indicators and they're pointing to lagging indicators and saying, Hey, things are, things are really good right now, but people are experiencing things right now, things that won't show up in the data for three months, six months, a year. And, uh, and so, you know, there are signs of, of trouble ahead, but sometimes it takes a while, uh, for that to manifest in experience and in the data. Explain GDP versus GDI for me where I can understand it. Yeah. So this was a, um, cause this is, there's some numbers that came out today that people are arguing about what they do or don't mean. I was, I was supposed to ask you two weeks ago about why numbers are coming out and they look super positive. And then a couple weeks later, there's kind of a correction to them that get less attention. That seems to be happening on sort of a routine basis. So I know that's threw a lot at you, but explain it to me and the rest of the class. Like we're kindergartners. Yeah. So they released an updated estimate of GDP for the third quarter. 
And it's really, really hard for me to make sense of any of these numbers. So the headline um, from the release was, you know, real GDP grew at 5.2%. And so all the headlines were, oh, the economy is growing like crazy. And this is, um, you know, and, you know, this will tell the naysayers, you know, that they're wrong because look at, look at how fast it's growing. Um, but when you actually dig into the report and you look at the data, it's really hard to make sense of what the data is, is saying. Um, so GDP is a measure of total production in the economy, but there's a couple of different ways that you can calculate this. So you can use like a spending approach to GDP where what they basically do is they go and they calculate, you know, the total amount of consumption, the total amount of investment, the total amount of um, money that the government uses to purchase things, not government spending, but like actual purchases. Um, and then they make a correction for like, you know, um, uh, for trade. So they count exports and then they subtract off imports. So in other words, some of that consumption data includes stuff that wasn't produced here. So you got to subtract that off. And so what happens is, is that you take all the spending and then you add up all that spending. And then that tells you what total production was in the economy over that time. Because, you know, investment incorporates anything that, like, hasn't been, you know, bought yet, like inventories and things like that. Um, another way to calculate this would be to just add up total income in the economy. So you take corporate profits, you take wages, you take tax revenue, you take all of this stuff, and then you, you add all of that stuff up. And if you calculate using the spending approach or the income approach, you should get the same number. Now, you never literally get the same number because there's measurement errors here, right? Yeah. But it's but usually the measurement error is really really small, right? So you um so you calculate total spending, you calculate total income, there's a little bit of a difference, but that difference uh, it's is negligible. Yeah, it, it's really small. And not only that, like over time, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. It just cancels out over time. It's not yeah. a big it's not a big deal. Okay. So when you look at the report today, it's like it's true that you know, real GDP grew um, at 5.2%, but real GDI, so that's the income measure, grew at 1.5%. So 5.2% and 1.5% are very, very different numbers. Yes. Right? Okay. And so the question is, like, what's going on here and how can these numbers be so, so different? And if you start digging into the data, uh, the data is much more... Um, pessimistic than than people think because when you start breaking down this income data, one of the things that you can look at is you can look at like real personal income and you can look at real disposable personal income. So what's happening to people's incomes in real terms, right? So adjusted for inflation and taking into account taxes. And what the report showed is that real personal income, uh, real disposable personal income was basically flat. So it didn't go up at all. Um, so the economy grew at 5.2%, but incomes basically stayed the same. How how would you explain that? It's hard to explain because I thought, okay, well maybe what's going on here is maybe it's all just corporate profits. But if you go, but they, they include that in the, in the release. And if you go look at corporate profits, uh, corporate profits were up from the last quarter, but they're down from last year at this time. So real corporate profits can't explain the difference either. And so it's very, very hard to make sense of these numbers. It's very hard to make sense of how you can get 
such radically different growth rates in in GDP versus GDI because these are supposed to be measuring. There's, there's supposed to be two measures of the same thing. And um and 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 well, the funny thing about this too is is like a lot of times, uh, what people will do is because they differ is like you know sometimes you know GDP would be like three point one percent and GDI would be like two point nine percent or vice versa, right? And then so some people will just take the average and they'll say, well, it's just three percent, right? And that seems fine because, you know, what's the difference between 2.9 and 3.1, right? Uh, calling that three, that seems fine. Sure. But when it's 5.2 versus 1.5, well, now the average is like 3.3. Well, what are we, like, what is the, you know. No, that's that's too big of a variance. You can't just meet in the middle. That you, at that yeah. point, you would send the paper back and say you need to redo your math. Right. And so it's really hard to make sense of the numbers. And, um, and like, so I'm not a conspiracy theorist here. Like, I think that most of the, because, well, partly because, you know, I know people who work at these agencies and, um, like it's really, it, it's a really boring, well, I, I mean, I shouldn't say that, but, it, but it is, it's a really boring job, right? It's very, uh, it's very technical. Like they, they take their job seriously. They're not, you know, um, it would be very hard to manipulate them into, you know, uh, into, into changing these numbers or something like that. But it's just hard to reconcile these numbers. And so something's got to be going on here. So maybe we're having measurement problems. Uh, maybe there's something going on in the economy that makes it hard to measure. But the problem that I have is not so much that, you know, there are these discrepancies is that nobody's talking about these discrepancies. Like all of the stories that I saw were like, Oh, like GDP growth, you know, grew so fast. And, um, you know, isn't this great? And, you know, now look at all the naysayers, you know, they look like idiots and it's just kind of like, well, you know, if you look at if you look at the data, you know the data are telling a different picture than uh, than than, the, than that headline. Uh, and and you know if real disposable personal income is basically flat, it's not hard to understand why people are upset, right? They're you know like um, you know they're no better off than they were before, and things are costing more. Yeah, so they're worse off. Yeah. So, well, real disposable personal income, like it controls for inflation. But basically what this is saying is that like overall, um, you know, uh, this, this income measure that they're using, it, it's showing that it's basically flat. So okay. any increase in inflation, like your wages are keeping up with that, but just but just barely. Right. Right. And so you're not actually you're not getting better off. Like any raise that you get is just offsetting inflation or you go get a new job and that's just offsetting the, the you know, uh, you know, the, 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 any change in your salary is just offsetting like the inflation that you're experiencing. So you're just getting a cost of living raise. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. You're not, you're not actually better off. Well, should we really strive to be better off? I mean, that, that shouldn't we just be happy that we're all in this together. Right. I mean, that's, that's where we're, it's what we're going for. I mean, I saw where the governor of New Jersey said, hey, we're not selling any new uh, gas-powered vehicles after 2035. By God, we're, we're, going, we're going electric only here in the next 11 years. Don't really, can't really explain to you how that's going to happen or how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. Always love that, 11 years out. Yeah. And then you start these policies that, that incrementally move towards it that, that just punish that make no sense. Don't tell people, well, here's how you'll be able to afford it. Well, and the other thing is like the, I saw like a, a, a meme the other day that was basically like comparing like uh, different cars in like the seventies or something to like different cars today. 
and you look at the different cars from the seventies, like they all look like very, very different from each other, right? Like you can tell that certain brands have a distinct style, that certain models have a distinct style. And then you look at the ones from today and like every car looks exactly identical. Like they all look the same. It doesn't matter who makes it. It doesn't matter like what it like if you just pick like small SUV, every small SUV, it's just the same shape. Yeah. You know, it's the same. You know, it looks the same. Everything about it is the same. And what people need to understand is that this is entirely due to government regulation because what happened is, you know, the federal government was like, oh, we need to have better gas mileage on our cars. And so, you know, they, they impose these fuel efficiency standards. Well, when you impose fuel efficiency standards, what's going to happen is, is that companies are now going to start designing the cars entirely uh, based on things like aerodynamics, right? Um, also, because different cars are uh, given different weights in like the average fuel economy standards, you know, certain things change. So like a truck today is much bigger than a truck was like 20 years ago. Yeah. And uh, and that's because, you know, of these standards, because they're they're just like averaging across all of these things. And then you're allowed a certain fuel efficiency for a certain size car. And so if you can't get the fuel efficiency down, you just make the bigger car so that it satisfies the, the efficiency standards. And and so you have all these, you know, so so what does this create? It creates just like homogeneous, you know, cars. It creates like bad incentives for companies because they start doing things that, you know, consumers aren't asking for they're doing it because it's a way to get around the regulation or whatever and i think that um you know you're seeing a lot of the i I think that they're doing a lot of similar things with like the electric vehicles because they just keep making these proclamations of well we're just going to do this with electric vehicles and we're going to do that in 10 years and there's no plan to do it and so what happens is you're just forcing companies to figure out a way to comply with the new regulations and so like you're you know it's very unlikely that you're going to get desirable outcomes. They'll achieve the objective, but like, but they're not necessarily achieving the objective in the way that you imagine in your head when you're making this uh, goal, you know, for 10 years from now. I mean, it feels chaotic, right? That you're creating. So someone can't buy it. They can buy a used one. So we're not really doing anything about the environment. Really? If that's, if we're even going down that road, we're just, I hate this term and I use it too much, but it's virtue signaling. It's look what we in New Jersey are doing for the big blue marble that we live on. Now, this isn't being done in China. It's not being done in India. It's not being done in South America, but by God, we're doing it in Trenton. And that's going to change a lot. To me, that's the nonsensical part. It's where someone like me and and I'll freely tell you that maybe I just don't get it and I'm an idiot possible more than more than possible but i don't understand how if a handful of states in our country come up with this even though there's no there's no grid to support it there's no plan for a grid to support it there's no real sustainable way to build the batteries and that type thing to make this work And nobody else really, when I say nobody, I don't mean literally nobody, but there's large swaths of our world that aren't doing this. We can't really seriously think that we're truly changing something. Well, the thing that cracks me up about this is like, A, you're not addressing the 
the root cause of what you uh, of what you claim to be addressing in the first place, right? Like just because it's an electric vehicle instead of a gasoline powered vehicle does not mean that it's better for the environment, right? Like if I'm charging my electric vehicle with uh, electricity that was generated by a coal power plant, that's way worse than me filling up a car with gasoline and driving it around in, in terms of the, the environmental impact. The, the other thing is that I, I don't know what the obsession is with the electric cars. And I, and I say that because it's hilarious to me that like the politicians are just like, you know, full speed ahead on this when like Ford and General Motors and these companies are coming out saying like, hey, uh, the electric vehicles aren't as popular as we thought that they would be. Like, we're going to start scaling back production. And then, you know, you have politicians coming out and they're saying, like, they're going to be all electric. And it's like, okay, the, but the companies that are making the cars are saying, like, no, no, they're, like, people people aren't buying them. They don't they don't want them. It's I, I do this all the time. It's the, it's, it's the, a steakhouse going, you know what? We, you, you asked us to put this uh, tofu on the menu and nobody buys it. So we're buying tofu that nobody buys, and we're spending time preparing it each night, and nobody purchases it. We're going to stop. And it's like the government coming in and going, no, not only are you not going to stop, you're going to stop selling steak in 10 years and sell only tofu. Well, who would, who would sign off on that? Well, but, you know, but there, we, we also have other technologies that would be, that would be cleaner. We also have other technologies that wouldn't require using, uh, you know, uh, oil and things like that. So, like nuclear. Well, and even when it comes to cars, like a, the the original inventor of the diesel engine, Rudolf Diesel, right? He created a version of the diesel engine that could run on like peanut oil and uh, and vegetable oil and, and and things like that. Right now, now we just put vegetable oil in all the food. But the uh, <laughs> but but the but you know you could you could. I mean, uh, you know, we can grow peanuts, right? Um, and so this this shouldn't be something that's, uh, you, know, you know, like, why isn't anybody out there saying like, hey, I got this car that runs on peanut oil, right? Like, I mean, why, you know, why not? Like, what, you know, why, why is there this obsession with like, oh, no, it's got to be, uh, it's got to be an electric vehicle. It's got to be powered by this massive battery, right? Like, why, why can't we just... Um, you know, why, why can't we let a thousand uh, flowers bloom here? Like, why can't we have diesel, uh, you know, engines and cars that run on peanut oil or, or vegetable oil or something like that? And then maybe, um, you know, maybe McDonald's will stop uh, frying their food in it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a, the whole food thing in our country is a topic that does not get the attention that it frankly desperately needs. It's, you see the pictures of like people in the sixties and people today and it's wild. Well, it's bad incentives and it's fake science. It gets back to a lot of all the, the, the stuff that we, we talk about on here is like you had all these people that did like what, what we call like observational studies. So you, you'll see this all the time on the news, right? On the news, it'll be like um, a new study shows that orange juice causes cancer. But if you actually go read the study, that's not at all what it says. It doesn't say orange juice causes cancer. What it says is like, you know, they went and studied a bunch of cancer patients and they found that like, you know, like an overwhelming majority of them are drinking orange juice. <laughs> and so they're, they're like, well, orange juice seems to be associated with this form of cancer. And it's like, well, you know, 
if we write down enough things that people consume or we write down enough activities that yeah. people, per, you know, engage in, like, I, I think that we can actually, you know, I think that we could get this conclusion for a lot of things. But that's also why when you turn on the news, like, they'll be like, oh, you know, orange juice causes cancer. And then the next week, like, completely undeterred, they'll be like, orange juice might be the key to a healthy life, right? <laughs> a new study showed, like, they're, like, oblivious to the fact that last week they told you, like, stop drinking it. You're going to get cancer. And this week they're like, oh, this is going to, like, make you so healthy. You're going to live longer. And, uh, you know, and, and these are all observational studies. And, and the problem with those observational studies is that you, you can't assign causation. All you can do is like see like what things are associated with what other things and, you know, statistically. And that, that doesn't really tell you much. I mean, it might tell you that you should do more research, but it certainly doesn't give you a guide to how to live your life. Yeah, they'll show these these super fit people and they'll say, you know, how do you, how do you, how have you achieved the, achieved this level of health? And they all pretty much say the same thing. Well, I eat a high pro, high protein diet, uh, get lots of exercise, drink lots of water, eat a lot of, uh, leafy green vegetables, really stay away from a lot of carbs. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And, and they're like, that doesn't work. It, they, well, it clearly does. Look, look at them. I mean, they they look great. That's that's. Oh, you. What makes them look great? Now we get into the whole thing about. Well, you know, if you say, "Hey, someone's overweight," you're fat shaming. If you say anything about someone's weight, about about not an individual person, because that would be mean. But if you just talk in general, you're fat shaming. If you, it, it's not. It, it's it's insane. And now you people go to the doctor. The doctor's afraid to say, "Hey, you need to lose some weight." Um. We've created this weird culture about food and about exercise and about weight and and exercise is a privilege or whatnot. No, it's like you know, go for a walk. I mean, it's it's not it's not a. There's so much there that, and then you just go to a grocery store, go to Walmart, and you walk around. Then like, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm not trying to be mean, but four out of every five people are not just overweight, they're dramatically overweight. 
and how we can think that's not going to be a problem that catches up with us. And it's not just old people. It's young people. I mean, teenagers are obese. Well, they're going to have all these medical issues that are raising our medical rates and all of these things that I haven't haven't been all over the world, but I hear from talking to people that it's not this way in every other country. Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. Okay, number one, like a lot of these observational studies led to really big problems because these observational studies were sort of like – uh, you know, oh, we studied people with heart disease and like, um, you know, the people who have heart disease, that's associated with like a high fat diet. You can't eat fat. Don't eat fat. But like you see how objectively stupid these things are when you started like, I, I don't know, th- this seemed like a thing in the 90s. I don't know. I don't really buy this stuff. So I don't know that it, it probably still exists. But like in the 90s, I remember like going to the grocery store and there would be like fat free cookies. Yes. <laughs> and it was like, oh. We've solved it, guys. <laughs> like, you know, like the idea that the fat-free cookie was saving you from obesity and heart disease, like it just like it's like come on, guys, like this is ridiculous. But this is exactly like what that leads to, right? Because people want cookies, and so they find out that like, oh, maybe the cookie's not good for you. So it's like, oh, it's like the fat-free cookie. Well, actually, it turns out that like what's bad for you in the cookie is like all the sugar, and so. But the problem is, it's like, look at the food, look at the food pyramid. The food pyramid is based on these like observational studies, right? Where they, they look at the stuff and they're like, oh, like red meat is, you know, uh, is bad. And like, uh, fat is bad and you know, all that sort of stuff. So like, what do they tell you to eat? Like it it was all like grains and bread and like, just like all the whole, the whole grain thing. Yeah. Just like high carb diets. Okay. And, um, you know, like these are all things that lead to obesity and diabetes. And this is what they were telling you to eat. And it was based entirely on like these, like um, they, they, they were based on these observational studies. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, but, but then the, the other problem in the, in the U S is that there's this emphasis on, um, on, you know, on cheap food, right? Like keeping prices down for food. Yeah. And so what, what does that do? Like, well, I mean, um, you know, you go, you go to like Mexico and you order a Coke, the Coke actually has like real actual sugar in it, right? Like if you go into the United States and you order a Coke, what it doesn't have sugar in it, it has corn syrup. Why? Because it's cheaper. I mean, like, the, you know, a lot of the problems are just that, you know, they're, they, they try to keep costs down. And so they replace ingredients with other ingredients that, you know, um, maybe don't really affect the taste, but make it cheaper and, and, you know, make, make it more likely that, that people will buy it. And the problem is, is that, you know, I mean, I, you know, it, all, all you should really have to do to somebody, um, to convince them that like corn syrup is bad for you is actually just get out some corn syrup and show it to them. Like if you've ever looked at corn syrup, it just makes you never want to drink a soda in the United States ever again, because it's just, it's disgusting. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't had one in forever. I've had people ask me, you know, what do you, what do you snack on? And it's like, well, I, I don't really change it a lot. I just don't drink soda ever at all because of what you just said is there's nothing in it. That's, that's good. I'd rather, well, I have empty calories. I'd rather have empty calories in a beer. It's not as bad for me, to be honest. All right. Speaking of health, um, I don't know if you've heard about this, but, uh, there's a, 
virus that's going around in China. It's this one impacts young people. This one impacts young people. Um, I read a story. Uh, Washington D.C. has seen an uptick in uh, this respiratory illness, um, and it's it's impacting young people this time. I mean, I'm sure it's a coincidence. But I can remember the last time, about this time, that we started hearing about this thing over in China. It's like 20, let me think, 2019. And then, like, really started picking up pace in 2020. But it didn't hurt young people. And that sort of stopped it from really gathering steam. And then in 2020, what was it? What else was in 2020? Um, I'm, 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 I'm trying to tie it all together. And now, here we are, late 2023. Going into 2024, I don't know. It's the new four-year cycle of viruses. It's incredible, isn't it? it, it I mean, what a, what a coincidence. I'll, I'll say this, based on just numbers, the number of people who have gotten the latest COVID booster is so low. It's like under 10%. Young people, it's under 4%. People aren't giving their kids the shot. I mean, they're not. I mean, this, when, when you're down under those numbers, you're no longer Democrat, Republican, white, black, white. I mean, rich, poor. You're you're crossing the boundaries, man. I mean, you're. I don't. I don't think you could. I don't think they can sell that again. I don't. And yes, I absolutely believe. For the record, before anybody thinks I'm a conspiracy theorist, on this, I'm a conspiracy theorist. I think COVID was a planned thing. I think the evidence is there. Whether it was, and if, and if it wasn't planned, it was something that was a mistake, and they covered it up because they knew that to tell the truth about it was going to be really damning. Fauci wasn't going to be man of the year had we told the truth in in the spring of 2020. One of the things I wonder is like, did we create a generation of hypochondriacs? Uh, because part of like these media stories is I think that there are people journalists who normally when a story like this would come uh, to their attention, like they wouldn't give it, they, they, they wouldn't give it much of their, uh, of their attention. Right. They would just say like, Oh yeah, here, here's this weird thing. Like that's probably not going to be a thing, whatever. And it seems like now what we've created is we've created a generation of hypochondriacs. Like they're just convinced that like the next pandemic is always around the corner that we're just, that people don't take things seriously and, um, and that it's their, their job to tell people about this. I mean, the thing is about this story is, and the thing that bothers me about it is it continues to be reported and it's reported like, Oh, there's this mysterious, uh, respiratory illness that's going through China and like now it's in the United States and it's like but if you read the article it's not mysterious at all they're like hey these are people who have the flu yeah. <laughs> like it's not a it's not a new virus it's not like you know nobody has detected any new virus or anything like that it's just like people are getting the flu uh, or people are getting other viruses and um, and then they're having these respiratory issues like pneumonia and um, you know I don't know. That just seems like flu season. And I think that, you know, there's, there's this tendency to just over dramatize all these things. And I think part of the reason is that they think that nobody take, you know, you have to put yourself in the position of these journalists, right? They think that they're like the enlightened people who 
understood what was going on and who, you know, brought you the news and who told you the truth about COVID when people like Donald Trump wouldn't let you know the truth about COVID or what, you know, whatever their narrative was. And now, you know, the, the every, every time that they see something like this, you know, it's just like, oh, this is my beat. Right. I got to get on this oh, and I got to yeah. tell you yeah. about this, this virus. I got to tell you about this illness because like, you're not going to take it seriously and you need to take it seriously and thatort of thing. And it's like, this isn't the, the, the headlines act like this is some mysterious new virus, just like COVID. That's what they act like in the headlines. If you read the articles, they're just like, oh, well, no, what's happening is people are getting the flu and then, you know, they're, they're having respiratory problems, right? They're, they're getting bronchitis, they're getting pneumonia, they're, you know, um, and, and, and like in fairness, some of these cases seem pretty, pretty serious. And maybe like there's more people who are getting pneumonia than usual or something like that. But like the underlying cause is not some new virus that we don't understand. It's the same stuff that has always gotten us sick. That's always gave, given people pneumonia. Well, we refuse to even possibly dive into the the possibility that, hey, maybe some of these vaccines were unnecessary. Maybe they, they had an adverse effect on certain parts of your immune system, uh, perhaps the year and a half in some places where people were forced to wear a mask all day long has impacted your immune system. I don't know. I mean, people don't typically walk around with a mask all the time. And then all of a sudden everybody's wearing a mask all the time. And, and it, it was who knows, right? But the, someone asked me a mailbag question, Josh, and it was, you know, how do you think journalism's changed? And I, I really didn't give myself enough time to answer it. Um, the answer is, I think where it's changed is that it's gone from, uh, it's gone from people really get a long, long thing here. I was watching a lot of the stuff last week about the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. And people turned on their TV that weekend. And they watched Walter Cronkite and David Brinkley and these people, and they believed them. They hung on every word. And they read the local newspaper. And I'm sure there were some people at the papers that they're like, oh, that guy's a quack or whatever. But for the most part, that's they went to the media to get their information. There was no Twitter or X or Instagram or TikTok. They went to there. And they were trusted, not unanimously, but mostly. And they're not now. Now, I don't think mainstream America trust the media. I don't think middle America normal American, and when I say middle America, I don't necessarily mean the middle of the country, but I just don't think your average person, I don't think you trust media the way that your parents trusted media. And then I don't think your children, my children, even think about media the way that you and I thought about media. They didn't grow up with Tom Brokaw or Peter Jennings or Dan Rather in their homes. Doesn't exist. They don't get any media that way. And so now I think when you tell young people this time around, hey, there's this virus and it's bad and you need to lock down or you need to be, I think they're going to give it a, a big middle finger and say, no, nah, I'm not doing that. I, I saw what you did the last time. You lied to us the last time. No, no, not again. That's what I believe. Well, and this is the fundamental problem with how they treated everything, whether this is like the public health people, whether this is journalists, whether this is whatever, like, <clears throat> they don't seem to have a recognition that like they're going to have repeated interactions with their audience. So like they, they just constantly told you what they thought you needed to hear in the moment. And the problem was, is that what they thought you needed to hear in the moment was constantly changing 
and not only changing, but like contradicting previous things that they said. And once you do that, that's it. Like you lose people's trust. Like once you say something and then you say the complete opposite thing later on and pretend without, without saying, yeah. Hey, I was wrong. Yeah. We, we were wrong when we reported this. Right. And, and then you, you lose all credibility because people are like, okay, well, how do I know that you're not just going to come back two weeks from now and, and tell me the opposite of this. And there was, there's like no thought given to that whatsoever. There's no, um, you know, the, the there's no sense in which um, there's accountability. There's no accountability. Um, I mean, there, there is in the sense that uh, people just stop trusting you and they stop listening to you. They stop reading you, whatever. And so in that way, like, you know, there's some indirect accountability in the sense that that might affect your ability to earn income. Um, but at the same time, though, the, the, it, there's just contradictory stuff all the time. And so why should anybody believe them? And also you know, they all say the same sorts of things. They're all in the same sorts of circles. And it, and it even started before COVID because you would see these things all the time where with, with Donald Trump, where you had all these journalists and this is, this is, I, I think like, uh, epitomizes everything that I say about journalists is that like they, the current, you don't like us, the current generation, <laughs> the current generation, you don't like us at all. They all come from the same class. They all live in the same bubble. They all travel in the same circles. They all know the same, uh, you know, uh, keywords they're supposed to use. They all, you know, every, everything, um, you know, you know, everything is in is self-contained. And so what you, but, but the other thing is, is that it's not only true that, that there's a class issue, but there's an age issue because there are people like when you look at people who are journalists for the New York Times, like when I think of a New York Times journalist, I think that guy has to be at least 50 years old. Just in my head. If you tell me, oh, this guy works for the New York Times, in my well, head. He worked his way up. Yeah. I picture a guy that's like, yeah. that's at least 50 years old. Not anymore. No. Now, these are people who are like fresh out of college or have been out of college for, oh, you know, five years. They're or late 20s, early yeah. 30s. They, they have very little uh, they have very little journalism experience. And you saw this because what would they happen? They went to an Ivy League school, Syracuse or uh, Northwestern. And a lot of them didn't even get journalism degrees. They have, and most of them worked in government. Then they go to work for some blog or something. And then they get picked up by the New York Times or the Washington Post. They're smart. And they because they, they they're pretty good writers, they're smart, but they don't have any reporting skill, and so therefore they just repeat what they're told, and they're 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 in bed with without sometimes without even meaning to be without even realizing it they're in bed with the people that they cover and if you're covering Congress or you're covering the White House or you're covering the the Department of Education or you're covering the 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 CDC. Well, those are your friends, and that you, that they give you the information, and you just write it up. Well, and I think that I talk a lot about the class issue, but I think the age issue is is important because it's not fundamentally about age, and it's not about it's not about intelligence; it's about experience. And the the guy who worked all his life to get to the New York Times, and he gets there when he's fifty years old. That guy has a lot of experience. He's he's done. There's been a lot of learning by doing, 
right? He's made mistakes, but he made mistakes at like the Des Moines Register. Well, he something. worked at the right. Abilene yeah. Herald, and then he got a job at the he got the job at the Dallas Morning News, which was a big jump when he got it, right? And then he busted his tail there, and the Atlanta Journal Constitution noticed, and he got a job on the national beat at the AJC, based out of Washington. And he tore it up there, and the guy at the Washington Post, the editor, kept noticing that they were miss they were losing stories to the AJC, and he's like, "Who is this guy?" And by then, he's forty seven years old, pretty damn solid, got sourced all over the place, and he gets that's where he lands the big Washington Post, uh, Capitol Hill, uh, beat. Well, by the time you get to there, you're you're yeah, you might have some flaws, you might you will have some biases, you will have some stuff like that, but you're a pretty good reporter. You're sourced, and you've done this for a while, and you know by that point you can kind of smell bullshit. Well, and you saw this inexperience come into play because when Trump took office, there was there did seem to be this desire all of a sudden in journalism that like to to be what we all used to think journalism was, right? And that's like reporting on things, holding people to account, right? Discovering, you know discovering that people are up to things that they shouldn't be doing and uh, and reporting that to the public and telling the public about it. And you saw that instinct come out in a lot of these people early on in the Trump administration. And the problem was they had no experience. And so a lot of what happened during that time is they would come out and they would be like, the president did X and like this is, and, and they'd make it sound like this is a huge controversy. And then what would happen is that some experienced reporter or some uh somebody who had worked in government or worked in Washington for years would come out and say look every president does that you know and and now that's not to say that it still wasn't something that should have been covered like maybe the fact that it's Donald Trump and and you're and and you want to go get him maybe that's the opportunity to stop presidents from doing x maybe they shouldn't be doing x but what would what would happen every time is is they would come out and say Donald Trump did x and this is bad and the um and and then some experienced person in Washington or some reporter would come out and say, look, every president does that. It's just a normal thing that they've done, you know, for 40 years or something like that. And then they'll and then and then the story would just disappear. Like, it's just like, oh, that wasn't the thing that's going to get him. So we'll just move on. And it's like, well, wait a second. If X was a big deal yesterday, maybe you should pursue this story and then you should turn that into a story about, hey, not only is Donald Trump doing this, but Obama was doing it. Bush was doing it. Clinton was doing it and start like, you know turn this into an investigative report. Like if you think that this is really something that's bad, it's not just bad because, because, you know, Donald Trump is doing it. It's, you know, if you think it's bad, then it's bad. And then maybe you need to have some sort of investigation and maybe you do need presidents to stop doing that thing. But that was never, that was never the outcome. The outcome was always, Oh, well, that's not the thing that's going to bring him down. So let's move on. I'll give you an example. There's a documentary out right now. It's called the fall of Minneapolis. Have you seen this? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a, a reporter from Minneapolis, she was married to a former police chief up there, and it's about George Floyd and about what actually happened. And in it, and I'm going to be careful with the words that I use here, her reporting alleges that the FBI applied pressure to the coroner to rewrite the autopsy of George Floyd. Now, that's a hell of an accusation. So I'm, I'm being careful here. Alleged accusation. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying she's wrong. I don't know. 
I wasn't there. I haven't talked to these people. But because that documentary, so much as even implies that there could have been something untoward, that the FBI got involved in that case within 24 hours. Now, again, I'm not saying it happened. But where is the journalism that goes in and digs into this documentary, digs into it? Because if she's wrong and that didn't happen, if I'm the FBI, I'd like to talk about that. No, we, we played no role in that. To be clear, the first autopsy this woman alleges in her documentary said that George Floyd died of fentanyl and other combination of, of drugs in his body. That That's what killed him. The autopsy, she alleges, when it was rewritten, basically took that part out, if you will, and said that he died of asphyxiation. It's pretty serious stuff when you think about, A, it's a person's life, and then B, what that led to. It led to, I think, ramifications that we're still dealing with today. Race relations in our country were better before George Floyd than they are today, period. So that's a hell of an accusation, but there's no media that picks up on it because they don't even want to report it. They don't even want to say this this documentary said and then dive into whether it's right or wrong or, God forbid, do independent research into did did or did not the FBI coerce, I think it's Hennepin County in Minnesota, to change an autopsy. And if they did change the autopsy, why? Did Was there a, a different medical person that looked at it and said, no, no, Yes, he had fentanyl in his system, but that's not what did it. What did it was this. I don't... That level of journalism doesn't exist anymore. Well, and this is the thing, too, is this is why journalism is important. Because there are lots of documentaries that get made. And the thing is, is that no matter how good of a job that the that the person does or how bad of a job the person does. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are judging it based on uh, how the material is presented and the material is obviously going to be presented in a way to make the case for whatever the documentary is about, right? Like the documentary has a particular slant and then the documentary is going to go in that direction. But the reason I bring that up is unless this is like a respected documentary maker, right? Like unless this is a person who's known for making many great documentaries, any individual documentary just leaves you with more questions than answers because you you watch the documentaries and you think, well, they, you know, they make a really interesting case here. And unless it's ridiculous, right, like you, you know, um, it makes you think about the, the stuff. But you also have to recognize that, like, the point of the documentary is in part to to tell a story, right? You're, you're, yes. you're, you're telling a story. And so you have a particular angle that you want to hit. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is that it's very hard for somebody to just look at a documentary and know whether or not they should believe it. But you know what people can look at is people can look at the name brand on the front of the newspaper and that name brand stands for something. And so if it's reported in this particular paper, 
well, now I believe it or I'm inclined to believe it. Right. And so, and, and so the thing is, is that when journalists stop taking these things seriously and when they stop really doing investigations and when they lose that skill and when they start telling stories, then this is when, you know, it becomes difficult to know what's really going on. And there's nobody and there's nobody to rely on. I mean, like, you know, you mentioned the, the you know, the sort of three big like news anchors from from our lifetime. I mean, Dan Rather ruined this for all those news anchors with the Bush. thing. Yeah, because like, um, you know, it came out that that, you know, he had a fake uh, record. Right. Like, um, you know, there was a there was a fake document, you know, on George W. Bush. And once he did that, it was like, you can't trust that guy anymore. Yeah. So like you, you you can't trust anything that that and and so he knew that a record had been falsified about Bush's service, yeah, and he, military service. Yeah, and he ran he and he ran, ran with it anyway. Yeah, and and so here's the problem: is that that not only tarnishes Dan Rather, but it tarnishes CBS News. Yeah, because if Dan Rather wants to do this story, somebody at CBS News has to step in and go, hey, you know, do are we sure? Right? Do we really know that this is it? Because CBS News can't afford to to. Yeah, you know, because the, you can fire Dan Rather, sure, right? But the thing is, is that you're you're still CBS News, and the next day, it doesn't matter if Dan Rather has been replaced with Jane Smith. It doesn't matter, right? Like you, you still CBS News. Why should you trust that Jane Smith is any better than Dan Rather? Like, what kind of stuff is she going to try that he that that he was trying? Like, the, you know, the, and so like name brands matter, and because name brands matter, people have an incentive to like do things. Uh, you know, properly because they don't want to destroy that name brand. And the problem is now is that journalists aren't doing that. Um, and they're not doing it because, you know, well, f- frankly, I mean, I think part of this is that, you know, the, the small town newspaper is dying. Yeah. And so nobody, nobody wants to go uh, work in the small town and, and work for the newspaper for very little pay to get some experience to work their way up. Especially when, you know, places like the New York Times are just going to hire, you know, some some person from who went to Yale or something like that and uh, or, or Northwestern, like fresh out of college. And so, yeah, like, let me go to like the middle of nowhere in Iowa and, and try to learn how to be a reporter. Cover city councils right. and mayoral races and things of that yeah. nature. And, 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 and work all this time to get a job that the guy from Yale just gets because he went to Yale. Yeah. You know, nobody's going to do that. All right. Real quick. I've kept you really long. Three things I want to ask you about. We'll do we'll do the sort of rapid fire, if that's possible. What do you uh, What did you make of the uh, election of Javier Malay as the uh, president elect in Argentina? He's uh, quite a different politician than the one that uh, that he defeated. Uh, he's incredibly entertaining. Uh, I think that it's time for Argentina to try the reforms that he's suggesting. Uh, Argentina is a disaster. Argentina has never paid off uh, a 30 year bond ever. Um, and that, now that doesn't stop them from borrowing, uh, with their 30 year bonds, but they, they don't pay them back. Uh, they have triple digit inflation. That's a regular occurrence. Uh, I mean, it's a disaster and like, you know, amazingly Argentina is not, um, you know, Argentina has stagnated, but they haven't, um, you know, they haven't fallen into poverty like a lot of other uh, countries that have gone down a similar path, um, but they haven't grown either, and they're stuck with bad policies. They're stuck with bad outcomes, and I think like he's coming in and essentially saying like, "Hey, let's get rid of the central bank, right? Like we have triple digit inflation, and so yeah, like in theory, a central bank um, could be a good thing, but like our central bank is is creating like a hundred percent inflation, and so like let's just get rid of them. Let's just use dollars instead. Um, 
you know, he wants to, you know, uh, he, he wants to cut a lot of uh, wasteful spending in the government. And, you know, I mean, Argentina's problems, you know, we talk about inflation, but part of it is like spending that's out of control. It's not just that like the central bank is printing too much money. It's that the central bank kind of has to has to print too much money because they spend too much money and they don't pay for, and they don't pay for anything. Right. They default on all these bonds um, or, you know, they 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 print money to uh, to pay off the debt and things like that. So. um, So the things that he's saying, uh, you know, I never want to put too much faith in a politician because politicians always let you down. But I mean, the things that he's saying are certainly things that Argentina should be doing and should be trying. And, and, and hopefully he's successful because, you know, Argentina used to be. Um, you know, uh, Argentina really used to be one of the richest countries uh, in the world at, at one point. And, you know, look at them now. They have 100 percent in inflation and stagnant growth for like 20 years. Uh, New York City, uh, New York City City Hall has removed the statue of Thomas Jefferson. It was offensive to too many people. Um, Thomas Jefferson, as you recall, played a quite a large role in the uh in the founding of our of our nation i think most people could safely refer to him as one of the founding fathers of our country wrote played a pretty big role in the writing of some of the critical documents that founded our our country he was a third president of the united states he uh he did a lot jefferson did had a had a pretty big resume by the time it was all said and done uh he lived in the 1700s into the 1800s there was a different era then uh, people looked at things differently then, whether right or wrong. He didn't get a chance to come back 200 years later and say, well, you know, um, but his statue's, his statue's gone from City Hall. I'm curious your thoughts on, on that and what taking his statue out of New York City Hall changes for the people of New York. Well, what does it change the, the, on a very practical level? The answer is nothing, but symbolically it's, it, it's important. And I think... This is a huge lesson that conservatives need to wake up and need to understand. Uh, conservatives, right-wingers, whatever you want to call them, they need to wake up and they need to understand something. People on the right think that they're having a principled argument with people on the left. So when the people on the left come come along and they say, hey, we don't like these statues, we want to tear them down, the people on the right think, okay, well, we'll have a discussion because, you know, some of these statues should probably come down, but, you know, obviously some of these other ones shouldn't come down. And so we'll just have like this principled discussion and we'll come to some agreement here and then, you know, we'll end up taking some of these down and then some of them will stay up. But, you know, we can reach a consensus here on, you know, what, uh, you know, what people believe is, is, is offensive or not. And what they need to realize is that they're not having a principled argument. Well, they are participating in a principled argument. The other side is not. The other side is not interested in a principled argument. They're not making a principled argument. They just want to destroy things. They want to take things down. They want to destroy and destruct, uh, you know, everything that they don't like about the United States. And, um, and you know, taking down a statue of Thomas Jefferson uh, serves them well because, you know, they would like to get rid of the founding documents. They would like to, you know, they, they would like to destroy things and start over. And people on the right need to wake up and realize that that's what this is about. You're not having a principled argument about whether about what statues should go up and what statues should go down. They want to bring down every single statue. They want to destroy everything. That you believe they want to take down anything that represents goodness, anything that represents, um, you know, uh, something that's uniquely American or, or something like that. Um, and so it doesn't matter whether they make a good point about certain things. They're never going to stop. And you have to recognize that they're never going to stop because otherwise this is what happens. They're just going to continue to take these statues down. Like, I mean, you heard you heard Donald Trump 
even say this. Like he said, oh, well, you know, they take this statue down, then they're going to take down Thomas Jefferson. And everybody laughs at him. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Like, they're not going to take down Thomas Jefferson. Well, the, the people who are predominantly laughing at him, by the way, are like, these, these were like right wingers, right? Like they were people who are like, okay, like, come on, let's be reasonable. Like some of these people weren't that, you know, that great of people. Maybe we should take down their statues. And it's like, yeah, like if we're having a principled argument, then yes, I agree with you, right? We should take them down. But the other side is not having a principled argument. They want to take down every statue. They want to take down the Jefferson statues. They want to take down the Washington statues. They want to... they Erase the country. Exactly. They want destruction. They are out for destruction, and that is their objective. And you have to recognize that that is their objective. They are not interested in having a principled argument. They are interested in defeating you and replacing the current system with the system that they want. That's what that's what this is about. It's not about, you know, um, you know, who deserves a statue or not. They, they've, they've already demonstrated that they don't care. They're not having a principled but argument. We could, go back to, we could go back through history and find imperfections with literally everyone. Right? Yes, and we can also go back through, through history and we can recognize that the people who start a revolution, the first thing that they do is they start tearing down all of the, uh, like all of the yeah. uh, all of the statues of the of the people who are up. Why? Because um, you know they need to destroy all of the you know all of the old um, you, you know they, they need to they need to destroy all all signs of the old regime right to install their their new regime and you know this this is no different. All right, last thing I didn't get to the one that I wanted to get to. I wanted to get to a Biden tweet that was about Hamas and. It's too long. We've been here too long. If people are listening. They probably would love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, we'll tease it for the next time. But the Tennessee school voucher program is being really talked about. One state over from where we sit right now. Uh, the opponents of that argue that um, the voucher program would destroy public schools, which, frankly, there's a lot there, right? That's an admission on their part that, well, private schools might just be better than public schools. And it also is their way of saying, well, hey, shouldn't we have a – I mean, they're, they're saying you don't deserve – certain people don't deserve a better education. I'm always fascinated by this because the people who the voucher program would truly raise are the same ones that – the people who are against said program are telling them, "No, we're, we're looking out for you. You you need to we, you need to stay in this public school here, even though we're telling you right now that school's not as good as the one that you would be able to go to if you used your voucher." Yeah, the, this is something that I'm really passionate about because if you think about how education works in the United States, we have a public school system. And so wherever you're born, that's kind of just like where you go to school. Mm -hmm. And so if you just happen to be born uh, poor, um, chances are you're also born into a terrible school district and you can't escape that terrible school district because you're poor. So you, uh, your family can't afford to send you to some private school. And so you're stuck with this public school. And so who's going to be the biggest beneficiary of the voucher programs? It's going to be people like that. It's going to be people who can't afford to send their kids to better schools, but they want a better life for their children. And I can't think of anything that's more like American than that, right? Is that, hey, I want to provide a better life for my kids. And so, you know, you understand why we can't have an exclusively private school system in the United States because not everybody could afford to pay for the, the the private school tuition and even, you know, and, and charity and things like that are, are probably not going to make up the difference. 
Okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have public schools. Like what that means is is that like you could actually just like provide subsidies to people who need it for for tuition and things like that. And that's kind of what this program is is designed to do. Um yeah, I mean all of the arguments that I've seen against this are oh like all of the people who want to institute this program, they just want to destroy the public schools and this is going to destroy the public schools. Okay, like let's walk through the logic there. How does it destroy the public schools? Well, what you're implicitly saying is, is that, well, nobody would go to public schools unless they literally had no other option. Right. That, that, that's what you're that's saying. That's exactly what you're saying. <laughs> and so if that's your argument, it, doesn't that raise questions about like um, whether like what's going on in the public schools? Doesn't that raise questions about why people would want to get out of the public schools? Doesn't that raise questions about whether you're defending something that's not worth defending? And then, uh, and, and then the other thing about it is, is that when you're saying that, you're also saying that like certain people just kind of deserve to stay there, right? That like, hey, yeah, some people can't afford it, but oh well, like um, you know, that 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 seems to be the that seems to be the argument. Well, they can't afford it, but oh well. No, like if people want to send their kids to to uh, a private school and they think the private school is better, then why shouldn't they uh why shouldn't they be given the uh, you know, some support to go send them to the private school that they want to send them to? You know, if the public school is that good, then, you know, um they, then, you know, they don't need the support. They don't, they don't need to send them there. They, you know, they'll be content to send them to public schools. And I think a lot of the debate about the schooling, um, it's just kind of idiotic because the, you, you get a lot of people who act like, oh, well, like, you know, parents, they don't know how to evaluate schools. And it's like, I, you know, I don't know, like people buy cars, cars are really, really, um, you know, sophisticated technologies. Right. And we trust people to go out and buy a car. Right. We trust people to go uh, to the car dealership and, and, and buy a car. We trust people to go, you know, to down the street to their neighbor who's selling their car and buy the car. Like we, we, we trust people to make those decisions. Chances are uh, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of people buying cars actually couldn't fix a car, don't know how the car works, wouldn't know how to design a car, wouldn't know how to do anything, uh, you, know, uh, you know, on the car whatsoever. Somehow we still trust them to make this decision and to figure out what, what car they want to drive and what car they think is good and, and, and that sort of thing. But when it comes to schools, it's like, oh, all of a sudden, like, oh, people are too stupid. How will they know, like, what, what schools are good? I don't know. I think parents uh, can figure it out. I think parents can figure out whether the, whether the school is teaching their, their kid, whether their kid is getting a good education or not. And, they're also, and so there's also some element of that argument is that kind of like, oh, no, no, you got to leave it to us, the experts. We know what a good school looks like. And so just trust us, trust us. We'll, we'll show you what a good school is. And we, you know, we, what other parts of, uh, of life are we doing that? You know, most things, uh, you're allowed to make decisions for yourself and you're allowed to judge quality, even when you don't have a lot of knowledge of the underlying good or service that you're consuming. All right. Most important thing for last next time we get together in two weeks, it might be done. We might have a verdict. Where will Shohei Otani be in two weeks? Give me your gut feeling. Tell me what you really believe. Okay, first of all, my gut feeling, if I'm going with my gut feeling, I really, I don't think he's going to the Dodgers. That's that's my gut. Okay. So that's not, a, that's not a, a prediction of where he's going, but a, that's a prediction of where he's not going. I, I just don't feel like he's going to the Dodgers. Um, you know, I'll probably be wrong because that's where everybody, you know, predicts, you know, that uh, has predicted he would end up for years. I will say with every passing day that he doesn't sign with the Dodgers. I wonder if he's not going to the Dodgers. And the reason I say that now, I'll let you continue your thought because I'm, I'm really interested. But the reason I say that is because I keep thinking about things logically. It's not about money. 
Because if it were just about money, he would just go to the Dodgers. They'll give him $500 million, whatever, whatever. They've been talking about this for a long time. It wouldn't be hard if his agent called the Dodgers and said, hey, we want to be a Dodger. You know, now look, we got some other offers, and we can hold this over you, or we can get this thing started. And if I'm the Dodgers, I, I'd want to know, hey, we have Shohei. We're going to go look for so-and-so. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. If this thing gets past next week at the winter meetings and he's not a Dodger, I don't think he's a Dodger. Now, maybe baseball's like, hey, look, wait, 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 wait. Don't do this until we get to Nashville. We'll have a big, everyone's going to be there, Verducci and Passan and, and and all the baseball people. MLB Network's going to be on site. We'll blow this thing up and we'll try to have our day if baseball can even do that anymore. Maybe. But I'm kind of with you a little. Go ahead. Yeah, so my, but I, I'm kind of feeling confident about that prediction that he's not going to the Dodgers. Where he's going to go, I don't. I, I, I'm not sure. So, with eternal optimism, I will say the Cubs. Because why not? Like, why not give me this moment? <laughs> why not give me this week or two to uh, just imagine and wish and hope and uh, and just you know, frankly, just assume it's it's going to happen. And uh, because that will bring me happiness, at least for a week or two, that will bring me happiness. And so I'm going to go with the Cubs. You know, it's funny. With each passing day, and I just kind of see things, piece things together. I'm not saying he's going to the Cubs. I am becoming increasingly convinced that the Cubs believe that they have more than a puncher's chance. I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that they believe it. And they're pretty pragmatic people running that organization. And the reason I say that is because Juan Soto trade talks have intensified. And it's the Yankees and the Padres that are exchanging names. Um, the Cubs are talking about pitchers, but the two pitchers that they're being linked to have one year left on their deals. Tyler Glass now, Shane Bieber. Both would be good pitchers, but it's not a big investment. It's, it's one year. On a year that the Cubs next year have a lot of money coming off the books. Even more than came off the books this year. They don't seem to be super involved with Cody Bellinger, who was the NL comeback player of the year for the Cubs. They don't seem to really be in that. That appears to be Giants, Yankees. Um, it just makes me suspicious. And then when people keep saying it, and then today John Heyman said, I think it was John Heyman, maybe it was Passan, the Cubs are really in it and that it's a really good fit. And then the whole first Sunday night game of the year is Rangers-Cubs. I mean, yeah, the Rangers won the World Series. Nobody watched it. There's a lot of baseball people that right now be like, who won the World Series? I don't know who's in it. I mean, you know what I mean? If I'm ESPN and they come to me and go, hey, Sunday night, first game of the year. NCAA tournament's going on, but you get the spotlight one night, you know, because the tournament's over on Sunday night. At that point, that's late. You're picking the final four teams. The games have been played. Who do you want? My answer to them, no no joke, seriously, is wherever Otani's playing, I want that team. Pr- 
preferably not against like the Padres, not the Pirates or something, but give me a game that involves his team, whoever it is, Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox, Phillies, Braves, Cubs, whatever, Mariners. I want him, his first game. I'm going to hype the hell out of that against whoever, and then we'll figure it out from there. So they picked Rangers-Cubs. And I immediately, with the when I first saw that, the first thing I said was, he's either going to the Rangers or the Cubs. And I'm kind of still there. Like, people saw about Blue Jays. I'm like, if you're baseball, do you let that happen? Do you let him go to Toronto? <laughs> like, to the, the, the outpost? If I'm baseball and I want to make it, I want to splat, I want some, I want him in a, I want him in the Central or Eastern time zones, and I want him on a team that has some romance to it. I, I keep coming back to the same conclusion. I want him as a Yankee or a Cub or as much as this pains me to say, a Cardinal. I want him in those time zones where people are seeing him all the time on a storied franchise that has some romance to it. And the Dodgers have that, but they're in the West Coast. The little boy in Charlotte still, when the Dodgers throw first pitch out, middle of June, he's in bed. It's 10 o'clock. I want him watching Shohei. Wanting the jersey, wanting to emulate him. That's what I want if I'm them. And I keep coming back to that conclusion that something's up. We're one fire emoji away. Uh, Yeah, literally. Well, yesterday was the funniest thing. Adbert Alzali, the Cubs closer last year, puts out a tweet that's just two robots. And literally, the internet world went off on trying to interpret it. <laughs> what, is, what, is a, what does that mean in Japanese? What is the, I mean, it was, all this, it was hilarious. And who knows what Adbert... I mean, it could very easily be that Adbert Alzali's little brother or son or something got a hold of his phone and it was like, oh, robots! I mean, who knows? <laughs> but it, it, was, it was hilarious. Um, it's it's fun, and if I'm if I'm baseball, it's the one thing people are talking about. And I, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to splash it, and I don't know that him going to the Dodgers does it. He was just in, he was in L.A. He's going up the freeway, thirty minutes. I don't know that that's big news, and it feels like they're setting up big news. And I don't know that going to the Dodgers going to the Dodgers is odd. Sure, he was always going landing with the Red Sox, the Braves, the Braves rumors out there. The Cubs, that's news. That's big. That changes the landscape. That gets people talking about baseball. And that's what they want. They're trying to figure out a way. How can we steal a couple of days from this football machine? And next week, I mean, the playoff thing is over. That's done. We're not having a Tuesday show of who's going to be ranked 1 through 12 in the silly thing. NFL's not playing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of next. I think it happens next week. Sticking with the Cubs, I think, uh, you know, if I can't have this hope, then what's the point, right? So, Well, I will do my part for the economy because if he's a Cub, I will fulfill my promise on all the jerseys And because if I don't, that would mean something terrible is going to happen. Like he's going to shatter his leg walking across the dugout or something. I, so I will do my, I'll do my part. That'll help the economy. I mean, who knows that? That's the real GDI and the real GDP. Everything will grow. Yes. Everything is up. Everything's up. Josh, as always, man, thanks for the time. Talk to you in a couple weeks. All right.